We have Seb Bunny. He's the creator of Looking Glass Education, the best Bitcoin education site for adults. Honorary Bitcoin dad and author, Seb Bunny. Thanks a lot, Julian. And first and foremost, before I dive in, I just want to say thanks to Fussler, because what he is hosting here, there is like no one else that competes. It's, it's a mini conference, so everyone just give a quick hats off to Fussler. It's, it's one of those things that for years I kind of looked at Bitcoin from kind of the shadows of Twitter. And I saw this kind of evolving beast and it was fascinating to watch, but I was not necessarily involved in it. And I think what's so cool about Fuster and these Bitcoin meetups is that he helps us to get involved and he allows you to meet like-minded individuals. And so I, I think it's truly incredible. And so with that said, I kind of wanted to dive into a meme that kind of builds on this idea. And so firstly, we can jump to the next slide. So how many of you guys in the crowd have heard of the meme, like, we are all Satoshi? A few of you guys. Nice. So when I first heard this meme, I may be a little slow, but it took me a long time to realize what this meme meant. And so I wanted to kind of share my thoughts on what this meme meant, because I think that it is profound, and there's a lot more to this meme that kind of initially leads on. So first and foremost, Bitcoin doesn't have a leader. Bitcoin has no centralized governing body. And so ultimately, Bitcoin's ownership, its involvement and responsibility in the development and the success is a collective endeavor. All of us are involved in Bitcoin's success. And we all have a unique perspective on how we came to understand Bitcoin, how we came to see Bitcoin. And I think it's so important that we share that perspective. Because for me, I came from the background as a mountain bike instructor, and I have my own unique perspective. I was just talking to Scott, and Scott over here was a financial advisor, or is kind of involved in benefits and financial advice, and he's seeing it from his own perspective. My partner is a teacher. She sees it from her own perspective. And all of our unique journeys allow us to orange pill different individuals. So ultimately, Bitcoin's success is in our hands as a community. And so with that said, what does all this mean and why does this matter? And so firstly, we can go to the next slide. This realization, money matters profoundly, this didn't come easy to me. For me, I would say I had a relatively normal upbringing, and this realization kind of came about through the last 30 years of my life. And what I started to realize is that money, like language, is just a medium of expression. It is how we express to the world what it is that we value. And so when our money becomes corrupted, when our money no longer meets the needs of society and its people, we can't express to our fullest what it is that we value. We can't express whether we want to purchase this one thing or this other thing. And so you can see a perfect example of this. If, if you go into a grocery store and you see someone purchasing grass-fed beef, raw milk, which is actually illegal in Canada, you can't purchase that, or any other kind of health food product, versus kind of cheap microwave meals and cigarettes, immediately, just from looking at their purchasing, you can see what it is that they value and what they put out into this world. And so money is more than just this thing that we transact with. It's a medium of expression. It's how we express what it is that we value. But again, like diving into this, this realization only came about from my own unique journey, and this is how I kind of piece together, and I see money. So firstly, we can go to the next slide. So I'm going to kind of dive into three events in my life that I think, although there's many others, these are kind of three events that have shaped my orange-pilling journey and kind of who I am today. So, and all of them, I should say, revolve around money. 
So the first one is I was born into a pretty normal family. My parents separated when I was about five years old, and I was raised by my mum. And because I was raised by my mum, my mum had to go out in order to be able to put food on the table and a roof over my two brothers and our heads. In order to do that, she had to work more. And because she had to work more, she was spending less time with us as kids. And so our emotional and developmental needs weren't necessarily being met. And I can see how that's played a role in my brothers and myself. Now, you can also see, in, or I would also say that a second event is when I was about nine years old. When I was nine years old, I, there was a scooter at the toy store that I really wanted. I wanted it more than anything. So I saved up for about three months for this scooter. I went down to the toy store to go purchase this scooter with my dad. And my dad felt at the front desk with my two uh, brothers that it was unfair that I was getting a scooter and my other two brothers weren't. And so he ended up buying the scooter for my two brothers and I had to pay for mine out of my pocket money. And what I realized in this moment is this is the Cantillon effect. Those guys that aren't familiar with the Cantillon effect, it is basically those closest to the monetary spigot benefit disproportionately. And that's how our monetary system works today. Those closest to our monetary printer benefit disproportionately. And I realized this on like a microcosm level within the family unit. And then finally, the event of kind of mountain biking and how kind of I would say what led me to Bitcoin, which is the fact that through all, all the way through my teenage years, I was obsessed with mountain biking. Mountain biking drove me to kind of the ends of the earth in order to kind of like seek that passion, that thrill. And I ended up becoming a mountain bike instructor in Whistler, BC, moving across the world or here. And I started to realize I was just like these people that I used to idolize that are in all these movies that I used to watch as kids. Many of these individuals, they're world-class athletes, and they have no assets. They have credit card debt. They're struggling to get by. And what I realized is the world is a hard place. We can't pursue the things that we're passionate about. The world is making it almost impossible to get by. And so you can see these three events, like being a man and bike instructor and struggling to get by, but also seeing world-class athletes struggling to get by. The, the, the situation with my dad, realizing that money shapes who we are, and those closest to the monetary spigot benefit disproportionately. And the last one, seeing my mum and being raised by a single child and seeing how a single family alters how we grow up and our developmental needs, this made me realize how important money is, how money shapes who we are as a society. And so from this, I started to realize, firstly, we can go to the next slide. So from this, I started to realize that everything is downstream of money. When you alter the monetary layer, it impacts everything in society. And so, firstly, we can go to the next slide. I'm going to dive into a couple different examples when it comes to behavior, but there is an endless list of these. And so, as Bitcoiners, we're probably familiar with time preference. And so, a perfect example of this, just to keep it simple, is when our money is losing value from one day to the next, are we incentivized to save? No, we're incentivized to consume. And so, what has ended up happening is just by altering the dynamics of our money, we've actually changed our behavior. Do we look to the future for stability? Do we look to the future for security? Or do we try to fulfill immediate gratification? And so this is where our behavior is changing just by changing our money, which is pretty fascinating. And then the second one, meaninglessness and apathy. So over the last 10 years, I've been fascinated with psychology. And as you dive down the, psych the psychological rabbit hole, you dive into something called our locus of control. And our locus of control basically dictates many outcomes, health outcomes in our life. And locus of control basically is, think of it as a spectrum. On one side of the spectrum, you believe that you do not have control over the world. The world basically governs you. On the other side of the spectrum, it believes that you have control over the world. And 
Those who believe that they have control over their immediate vicinity and control over the world around them have much greater health outcomes. They have much reduced risk of depression, anxiety, and whatnot. You have much greater mental health, greater friendships, greater confidence. Those that believe that the world basically governs them, that they have no control over themselves, lead to much poorer health outcomes, uh, much higher rates of depression, anxiety, obesity. And this has been studied extensively. And so what you start to realize is that when money is losing value, when people are struggling to get by, when we cannot own a house without taking out hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of debt that we're never going to be able to pay down, people are finding life meaningless. What, how are we going to get ahead? People start kind of, kind of slumping into nihilism. What is the point? And so this is, again, this is a result of our money. And then finally, altruism. So you guys may have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, basically, it's a five-tier pyramid. And it states that you cannot fulfill these upper needs until you meet your basic needs. And so those basic needs are your basic survival needs. You need food and you need shelter. Once you meet food and shelter, you can start diving into relationships. You can start diving into self-actualization and giving back. But the problem with our society today is the rising cost of living means that it's harder and harder to get by. And given that it's harder and harder to get by, our aperture of awareness starts to narrow. We're no longer focused on trying to give back. We're trying to focus on just surviving. And so society, these are just three examples how our money and changing our monetary environment has now altered how we show up in this world. And you can now take this and extrapolate it out into these various aspects of society. So I'm going to touch on all four of these very briefly, but then we're going to primarily focus on two. So first is environmental degradation. So if our money is worth less from one day to the next, and we're incentivized to consume rather than save, well, guess what? Jeff Booth talks about this, and we live on a planet with finite resources. So if we live on a planet with finite resources, yet we're incentivized to consume, what's going to happen? We're just going to deplete our planet's resources. And we see this in our waterways. We see it in our forests. We see it in our minerals. We're just extracting resources to no end. And the next one is government and politics. When the government has a money printer, it does not have to act in the interest of its populace, because it can fund operations through hitting the print button and devaluing the currency. Now, this is at odds with something like Bitcoin, which incentivizes productive behavior. And then next up is business practices. When the government can simply step in when times are tough, and it can simply print money and stimulate the economy, this does not incentivize fiscal responsibility. Businesses, what they learn is that when times are tough, we're going to get bailed out. And so we end up having these monoliths, these monopolies that would not exist otherwise. And so we're incentivizing unproductive behavior, risky behavior. And then finally, the parent-child bond. And this kind of goes back to my childhood again. When our, money is worth less, uh, when our money is worth less and our parents have to work more, there is less time for them to dedicate to their children. And we are seeing this more and more and more. And so when they're not able to dedicate time to their children, their developmental needs are not met. And we're seeing rising rates of ADHD, anxiety, depression, obesity. And all of these, when you start diving into them, the majority, or I'd say, for the most part, these are not genetic. These are environmental coping mechanisms. These are coping mechanisms because kids are not having their needs met. And so we can dive into, let's dive into environmental degradation and the parent-child bond, just because I'm conscious of time. And so that's why we can jump on the next slide. So environmental degradation, what most people don't know, and this blew me away when I found it out, is the fact that GDP, 68% of GDP is from consumption. And that's profound. When the government, or when the central bank is saying, Let's try and grow GDP by 2 to 3% a year. What they're really saying is, let's just try to grow monetary transactions as a purchasing of goods. And so if we're just trying to increase purchasing of goods, 
again, we're just going to, we need more resources, we're just going to decimate our environments. And so what you start to see, in the 1950s, global plastic production was 2 million tons. Today we're at 419 million tons. That far outstrips population growth far outstrips population growth. And this is because we're incentivizing consumption for the sake of consumption. And again, if you look at textile waste, textile waste accounts for 20% of the world's wastewater and 92 million tons of textile waste annually. And this ends up in usually the developing countries because most stuff is not recycled. Canada sends most of its recycling to, Japan, uh, to China to be jumped, dumped in a landfill. So we can now dive into the parent-child bond, which is my passion over the last, I would say, like four or five years, I've been diving into psychology for about the last 10, and the last four or five years I've been diving into what's called somatic therapy. And somatic therapy is basically how our upbringing and our childhood and, how this, and the trauma which we face during these early developmental years impact us throughout our lives. And what is so fascinating is that basically not just when we are in our early stages of development, are we going to be impacted? But even while we're in our mother's womb, we're going to be impacted by the stress that our parents feel through money and, and related issues. So if our mum was stressed financially during birth, what ends up happening is the hormones that they're feeling, whether it is uh, cortisol, whether it is epinephrine, whether it's adrenaline, the baby feels that acutely. And that ends up impacting their nervous system. That impacts their threat response system. So they become hypervigilant as an adult, which leads to adverse health outcomes, obesity, ADHD, which we've mentioned. And so you can now start to see that money starts to impact people. And I say this because money is the number one cause of stressor in the world. In Canada, it is the number one cause of stressor. In the States, it's the number one cause of stressor with, I think it was 74% um, or 73% of Americans suffer from monetary stress. And what is so fascinating is that it's also the second leading cause of divorce. And so you can start to see money is a profound stress in society. And if it's a profound stress in society, it's not out of the question to think that it's impacting the development of our children. And then on top of that, you can see in 2020, 84% of working mums didn't take time off due to financial constraints. And 57% said they had no alternative but to continue working. And this chart on the left-hand side is basically highlighting that in Canada, since the departure of the gold standard, we've seen a doubling of dual earner couples. And this is because families can't survive. You can't have a single working individual in a family these days who's able to purchase a property and support the family. Instead, both parents have to be working. And what that means is less time for the children, less time to meet their developmental needs, which I think is profound. And if we start extrapolating this out over from the 70s onwards, you start to see these rising rates of illness and disorders and whatnot. So I say all of this because in the end, I do have hope. And I think that the future is bright. And I say this because I think Bitcoin can solve many of these issues. Because all of a sudden, and I don't need to dive into many of these big kind of scarce trustlessness, permissionlessness, decentralized, because that's a topic for a whole other day. But in, in, in simplistic terms, when we have a money that is increasing in purchasing power over time because there is a finite amount, this changes the incentives in society. All of a sudden, let's take mums, for instance, and dads. If you have a money that's increasing in purchasing power, then parents over time can work less, not more. And so if parents can work less, not more, then they can dedicate more time to their children. And so if children are feeling more nourished, if they're having their needs met, their emotional and physical needs met, this is going to lead to incredible benefits for that child throughout the rest of their life. And so we can also see the same things in our environment. If we are incentivizing saving over consumption, 
what does that do? Well, all of a sudden, we're going to drop consumption. By dropping consumption, there's going to be increased competition amongst uh, corporations. There's increased competition. It's going to weed out those who are offering poor quali uh, quality products, and it's going to help drive up the quality of products and the values at which people are pushing. So you also see the same thing in government. By removing money from government, all of a sudden, government has to act as a fiscally responsible entity. That doesn't mean that they can't stimulate the economy when times are tough, but in order to do that, they need to save, and they actually need to think long term. And so you're changing the incentives of society. And I think this is profound. And so ultimately, for me, Bitcoin is the answer to many of the issues that we face. And that's not to say that we're not going to have other issues that pop up, but many of the issues we face today are because of our monetary system, because everything, I believe, is downstream of money. And so we can jump to the next slide. And so tying it back to like we are all Satoshi, yes. this journey, for me, is something that I really, I didn't realize how profound Bitcoin is until I started to reflect on how money alters us as individuals, how money has played a role in my own life. And all of you have your own journey. All of you have your own experiences which led you to this room, which led you to Bitcoin, and you see how Bitcoin is altering the world around you and altering your own lives. And so I would say, given that there is no marketing department, there's no CEO of Bitcoin, ultimately Bitcoin's success is in our hands, which is scary, but it's also profound and it's incredible. And so I think that in the end, I would ask you, how has money impacted you, your life, and those around you? And if you're open, I would say share your perspectives with those, whether it's social media channels, whether it's a social events, because in the end, we as a community are ultimately what makes Bitcoin succeed. And so we can kind of dive to the end. So I just want to say thanks, and more than anything, I want to say thanks to the Bitcoin community, because those before me, it's incredible what they have done, and even many of the individuals in this room. And I think this community is the coolest, most mind-blowing community. I've never met a community at which I can walk into a room and have a conversation with almost anyone about topics that I would never dare about having conversations with up in Whistler where I'm at. And I, I just want to thank everyone in this room. Um, and then on top of that, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Seb Bunny. You can look at Looking Glass Education uh, for educational resources that we offer. Um, and a lot of this content as well, I like to take a different approach to money and look at it, how it's impacting the average layman and these other areas of society like the parent-child bond and environmental degradation. And all of this is in a book that I've been writing for the last year called The Hidden Cost of Money. And so that will be out in the next two months. So if you want to reach out, you guys can definitely check that out. But again, thanks, everyone. Woo!